beginning, we don't want to get bogged down in kind of the, um, the different details, the small details of this book. We want to make sure that through this series, we keep our eyes on the main thing. And so that is the, the reason we're going to be doing that. But welcome to week 10 of our series that has us walking through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I pray that through it already, through the past nine weeks, you've been challenged, you've been encouraged, maybe even a little overwhelmed by the, the power of this book so far. But let me just say this, it's only going to get better. It's only going to get better. You know, we've seen a majestic picture of Christ in Revelation 1. We've heard piercing and penetrating words from Christ to his church in Revelation 2 and 3. And this morning we come to two of the most glorious chapters in the entire Bible. In Revelation 4, we now move from earth now into heaven. And that is where our minds should be. I mean, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says, Set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth. So we should have our minds set on heaven. And the reason is because from an earthly perspective, it might seem as if the enemies of the kingdom of God are winning. We think of Christians being persecuted, being imprisoned, being martyred. We think about tragedies and trials that are increasing even in our world, in our sphere of, of influence. And it almost seems as though Satan has the upper hand. And it's, it's as if the Holy Spirit comes to John and through John comes to us and says this, things are not as they appear. The Holy Spirit says, I'm about to show you how things really are. Things are not running amok. The devil has not won. Evil has not triumphed. Neither fate nor cruel chance governs the universe. It's as if the Holy Spirit saying, He who was and is and is to come has everything well in hand, has everything under control. I think of the words of Corey Ten Boone. She said this, There is no panic in heaven. There's a lot of panic on earth, right? A lot of panic in our lives. There is no panic in heaven. Then she says this, God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems, only plans. And this morning we are entering that portion of Revelation where Jesus reveals to us the plans of God for the world. Yet in the midst of these plans, all we're going to see over the next few weeks, don't miss the praise. For the scene we're about to see this morning is bursting forth with worship and with wonder. And those two things have to go together. Worship and wonder have to go together. For if you have worship without wonder, you have lifelessness and you have boredom. So worship without wonder leads to boredom. And many in the church today have lost their sense of awe and amazement when it comes to God. If we're not careful, we can quickly lose the capacity to marvel at the presence of God. We become sometimes so, I guess, we just accept what we know about God. And we're just okay with that instead of continuing to marvel at who He is. I think of the words of Warren Wiersbe here, who puts it this way. We must recognize the fact that true wonder is not a passing emotion or some kind of shallow excitement. It has depth to it. True wonder reaches right into your heart and mind and shakes you up. It not only has depth, it has value. It enriches your life. Wonder is not cheap amusement that brings a smile to your face. It is an encounter with reality, with God, that brings all to your heart. 
you are overwhelmed with an emotion that is a mixture of gratitude, adoration, reverence, fear, and love. You're not looking for explanations. You are lost in the wonder of God. And I pray that that would be true of us today, that we would find ourselves today lost in the wonder of God. And ultimately what we're about to see this morning is that there is a throne and God is on it. And he is worthy of all worship and he is worthy of all praise. So let's jump into the word today and let's approach the occupied throne together. We're going to read chapters 4 and 5. And I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. And I know that might sound daunting, but it's only 25 verses, so we'll be okay. So Revelation 4 and 5, and beginning at verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the, on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people 
for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. God, blow our minds today with a sense of, of wonder at what we see at your throne. God, help us to see you for who you are. God, move us today by a vision of you. And Lord, speak to us for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Let me just tell you, from the beginning, my mind is going about a thousand miles a minute right now because I have way more information written down here than I have time. So um, this is going to be fun for me, so we'll see how we get through it. But here's the deal. As we come to chapter 4, we need to keep in mind that the church has been mentioned some 19 times in the first three chapters. So the first three chapters, the church is mentioned 19 times, and now the church completely drops from the pages of this book until the end of the tribulation in Revelation 19. So from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19, no church whatsoever. Now some theologians believe that the book of Revelation should not be seen as chronological. When you see it, when you view it as chronological, there's a lot of issues that, that happen. But they, see, they say it should be viewed as cyclical, meaning there's a bunch of cycles and circles, and you can place those on top of each other, and it kind of helps you understand the book of Revelation. Many people who view the book this, this way believe that Matthew 24 is a better chronological picture of the rapture, where it seems as if Jesus puts the rapture after the tribulation. Now, those who see the book as chronological, and many who see it, or some who see it as cyclical, would say that there are only two logical conclusions as to why the church is not mentioned from chapter 4 to chapter 19. Number one, either the church has been completely wiped out by persecution and by the enemy, or two, the church has been taken out through the rapture by Jesus Christ. So one of, of two options. Now when we read Revelation 4 and a door open in heaven and um, John hearing a voice like a trumpet, it begins, makes me think of 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. There seems to be a connection there. But ultimately, the main point of these two chapters, don't miss it, is that there is a throne in heaven and it is occupied. That's the main point. Revelation is a throne book. As we saw last week or heard last week, the word throne is mentioned 45 times. In this book, 14 times, just in chapter 4 alone, everything in Revelation 4 and 5 revolves around the throne of God, yet there is no point of reference to this throne. It has no height, no, nor depth, nor breadth, nor length. It has no beginning or no end. It is just there. But here's what I love, and don't miss this. When the, the door is opened up and John is given a glimpse of heaven, think about this. The first thing that he sees is not mansions, or streets of gold, or 
the crystal sea, the river of life, or all of our family members, the first thing he sees is the throne of God. It's almost as if heaven is all about God and not about us. It's almost as if that is the, the point of heaven. The first thing he sees is not things that we think about when we think about heaven. The first thing he sees when it comes to heaven is that God is there. And God is ruling and he is reigning in a way that should comfort our hearts and minds. So we, we are told about things around, in front of, encircling the throne. Everything in the book of Revelation finds its reference to the throne of God. And here's the point for us. Earthly monarchs come and go. Earthly thrones are filled and then vacated. But this throne in heaven remains filled or occupied forever. It remains occupied forever. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to, I normally say quickly, but we're going to take some time here. We're going to unpack three truths concerning the one, and I say that, um, emphasizing that, the one on the throne. It's going to be a little confusing with our first truth. So three truths concerning the one on the throne. Truth number one, see the glory of our triune God. See the glory of our triune God, meaning that in these two chapters, we see a Trinitarian view of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are there. God in three persons revealed to John in John chapter, or Revelation 4 and 5. And here's what we need to see. So for each person of the Trinity, we have a sub-point, and let's kind of unpack these together. Number one, He, meaning God the Father, is our glorious Creator. He, God the Father, is our glorious creator. Look at the verses on the screen, verses 2 and 3 and 10 and 11. It says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and around the throne was a rainbow. Twenty-four elders fall down before him and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So chapter 4 centers on God the Father, on the one who is the glorious creator of all, the one who is seating or seated, excuse me, on the throne. And he is glorious. He is altogether glorious. He is glorious in his person. So John sees the throne, but doesn't dare try to describe the one who is seated upon the throne. Instead, John describes God the Father in terms of precious stones, which represent glory and purity. John basically says this to us. Think about the greatest light show you've ever seen and then multiply it by a million and that's what you see in heaven. I mean, that's the picture. That's the point. This was John's way of saying what Paul had already declared in 1 Timothy 6 where it says, The King of Kings dwells in unapproachable light. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's glorious in his person, but he's also glorious in his promises. When you look at verse 5, God makes promises, even promises that lead to judgment. For according to verse 5, judgment was coming. And think about this. In verse 5, we read about, uh, of chapter 4, we read about lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And we should, we should think about Mount Sinai. We should think about God coming to his people at Mount Sinai to give them the law and the thunder happening. And here's the point. As Mount Sinai thundered when God gave his people the law, now Thundering and, and, and lightning and all of these things are happening as God prepares to judge people who, has bro who have broken the law. So God is now preparing to judge people who have broken the law. But never forget this. Habakkuk 3.2 says this, that in his wrath, 
God remembers mercy. Don't miss that. In his wrath, God remembers mercy. And that brings us to the rainbow. In verse 3, it says that around the throne is a rainbow. And it's kind of cool because it means that the rainbow around the throne is a full circle. Every rainbow you and I have ever seen is only a half circle, but in heaven it is a full circle. And here's the amazing application of that. And this is just absolutely mind-blowing. The reason that the rainbow is a complete circle in heaven is because there is nothing incomplete in heaven. There's nothing incomplete. Isn't that good news for us? There's nothing ever incomplete in heaven. It's a beautiful thought. And just think about the promise of the rainbow. In Genesis 9, after the flood, after God poured the the flood upon the earth in judgment, the rainbow came. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel is seeing the judgments of God, the rainbow appears in the middle of um, what's going on, in the middle of the judgments. And now here in Revelation 4, the Rainbow appears before the judgment. So here's the picture. Whether before judgment, whether during judgment, or whether after, in his wrath, God remembers mercy. God remembers mercy. And he is glorious. He's glorious also in praise. If you look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, you see God enthroned and encircled. But it starts getting a little confusing because he's enthroned and encircled, first of all, by 24 elders. So the question becomes, who are they? Some people believe that they're the angelic order. Others believe that they are the Old Testament priesthood of 1 Chronicles 24. Others think they are exalted Old Testament and New Testament believers. Still others believe, and this is kind of where I kind of uh, merge in here, that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, or namely, they represent the redeemed of all ages. The 24 elders represent the redeemed of all ages. And then we're introduced to the four living creatures who were the nearest to God. Their appearance reminds us of the cherubim mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Yet their praise, holy, 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 reminds us of the seraphim in Isaiah 6. And it has been said that their purpose is to remind all creatures throughout all of eternity of the ministry of Christ. In fact, many early church fathers believe that in verse 8, when it talks about the four living creatures and, and it talks about their, their faces and, and, and different expressions, that that was a picture of the Gospels. That was a picture of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how those, of course, point to Jesus. But here's the, here's the deal. If that is true, may we never forget that Jesus in his ministry always pointed to the Father. Jesus, in his ministry, pointed to the Father, who is the glorious creator. So he, God the Father, is our glorious creator. But then secondly, he, God the Son, is our victorious redeemer. So he, God the Son, is our victorious redeemer. In chapter 5, we are introduced to a scroll containing God's foreordained plan for the redemption and restoration of creation. This scroll contains plans which will lead to the elimination of evil, the elimination of Satan, and the defeat of death. Um, This scroll contains plans for the final removal of sin and suffering. A lot of people wonder, what's in this scroll? And what I believe is what's in this scroll is what we read from chapter 6 on, is what is in this scroll as Jesus opens it. But here's the deal. In order to open the scroll, a person would have to cross the sea of glass. They would have to withstand the thunder and lightning that radiated from the throne. They would have to approach the 
blinding brilliance of the throne of God. Then, having taken the scroll from the hand of God on the throne, that person would need to have the authority to put everything that God has planned into practice. So the question of heaven is this, who is able to open the scroll? And this chapter, chapter 4, gives us the answer, no one. And think about that. No one means not Abraham or Moses, not Joshua or Caleb, not Elijah or Elisha, not David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, not John the Baptist, not John or James, not Peter, not Paul, not Mary. I mean, none of them are able to open the throne. A universal search is made and no one is worthy. And John begins to weep. And an elder steps up and basically says, stop your crying. Or says, weep no more. And it says, as you see it on the screen, verses 5 through 7, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John is pointed to a lion, but instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb who had been slain. Was there ever a more dramatic moment than this? But don't miss our victorious Redeemer. Don't miss him. For first of all, he is a slaughtered lamb. Our victorious Redeemer is a slaughtered lamb who shed his precious blood, yet he is standing. And think about this. Slaughtered lambs don't stand. Slaughtered lambs don't walk around, but this one does. Because he has defeated death. And in the midst of the throne, John sees the only man-made thing that will ever enter heaven. And the only man-made thing to ever enter into heaven is the wounds of Jesus Christ. The only man-made thing. In fact, in the words of Walter Scott, he said, The memories of Calvary are treasured in heaven because that's where Jesus' wounds are. The memories of Calvary are treasured in heaven because of the wounds of Christ. As we see the slain lamb, we realize that Jesus isn't awaiting victory. He's already conquered is what it says, meaning he has achieved victory through the cross. And the theme of the lamb is an important one all throughout the word of God, all throughout scripture. Think about this. In Genesis 22, Isaac asked his father Abraham, where is the lamb? That became the question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Where is he? John the Baptist answers that question in John 1 when he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here in heaven, we now see the inhabitants of heaven saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. He is the slaughtered yet worthy Lamb, but he's also, don't miss this, the sovereign lion. He is the sovereign lion. He is the source of our salvation, he's the strength of our salvation. And he approaches the throne and he takes the scroll. What audacity. What audacity to approach God the Father and take the scroll. Yet what truth, for only God shares the spotlight with himself. So this is Jesus taking the scroll. Think of it this way. The lion who wills power and strength that none can resist is also the lamb who walked this earth in weakness and suffering. The lion who is known for his majesty is also the lamb who is known for his meekness. 
The lion who is known for his uncompromising commitment to righteousness is also the lamb who overflows in love for sinners like you and me. The lion who is life itself is also the lamb who willingly died for sinners. The lion who in himself needs nothing, who is altogether self-sufficient, is also the lamb who gives and gives and gives again generously and abundantly, and he never stops. He is at one and the same time a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion without any contradiction in itself. And if your mind starts doing this a little bit, that's a good, good thing. Like Brother David said on Wednesday night, when it comes to this God, when we study him, you don't need drugs. You don't need drugs. If you just get in and study the word of God, God will blow your mind. I mean, this is what he will do, which leads us to the third truth, which is this. He, the Holy Spirit, is our gracious perfecter. He is our gracious perfecter. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see the seven spirits of God, the complete and perfect Holy Spirit in both chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, verse 5, you see it on the screen. It says, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, I saw a lamb standing with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is perfect in his person. He's perfect in his position. He's perfect in his performance. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is sent by God the Father, sent by God the Son into the world to carry out the divine mission into the world. The Holy Spirit is the power for our mission. He's the power for our transformation. When we get to Romans chapter 8, He is the one who conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. So He is our gracious perfecter. He is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is the mystery of the Trinity. It is mind-blowing. But please understand this and please hear this because I think a lot of people have a misconception here. A lot of people believe that when you get to heaven, all of a sudden we're going to get to heaven and we're going to know everything. We're going to know God and all his fullness. And then we're going to look at the clock and say, well, what are we supposed to do forever? You know, I know all there is to know about God. What are we supposed to do for the rest of eternity? And the point is this, brothers and sisters, there is enough glory in our God to last for all eternity. Meaning this, you will never get to the bottom of this God. You'll never get to the bottom of him. When you think you got to the bottom of him, he'll pour out more fresh revelation of himself. It's enough to keep us occupied. Get this forever. Forever. This is the beautiful picture of our God. There's enough glory in him to last forever. So see the glory of our triune God. Then the second truth we're going to unpack is this. Hear the praise surrounding our God. So hear the praise surrounding our God. Hear the praise. And there are two things I want to show you here. First is that God is surrounded by unending praise. The praise here is unending Look at the screen, verses 8 through 11. It says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders fall down before him, who seated on the throne and worship him. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. This God is surrounded in praise. And this praise is never ending. Day and night and night and day. For you don't sleep in the presence of majesty. You don't sleep in the presence of glory. Instead, you bow down. You rejoice in him. And think about this. At this very moment, there is a host in heaven who are resounding the praise of God. When you get home this afternoon, they will still be resounding the praise of God. When you close your eyes tonight in sleep, they will still be resounding the praise of God. Lord willing, when you open your eyes in the morning, they will still be resounding the praise of God. As you live throughout your week, and Lord willing, you come back here next week, they will still be resounding the praise and glory of this God. Don't miss it here. Don't miss what's happening here. What this God is worthy of. Surrounded by unending praise. But also don't miss it as well. Secondly, he's surrounded by universal praise. He's sur surrounded by universal praise. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. We really got to get a hold of this and understand the beauty of this. Or, or verse 9, excuse me. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In chapter five, we see and we hear the song of the redeemed. In chapter 5, only the redeemed are said to be singing. And what are they singing about? They're singing about the worth of Jesus. And hear this, they're singing about the blood of Jesus. Do you know that there are churches today in our country that have taken songs about the blood out of their hymnals or out of their praise song sets? They have taken the blood out. Like they won't sing songs about the blood of Jesus. But let me tell you a place that hasn't taken the blood out of their songs, heaven. They are still singing about the blood of the land. They're still singing about what he has done. They're singing about his redemption, his salvation. And salvation that has come, get this, to every tribe, to every tongue, and every nation. Brothers and sisters, the only reason that we're in is because the gospel has come to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That's the only reason we're in. And praise God for his grace and that God will accomplish the mission. And thankfully, we are able to be a part of its accomplishment. But don't miss the praise surrounding this God. He is holy and he is worthy and he will forever be worthy of our praise. Which leads us to the last truth, which is this. Live in the power of our God. Live in the power of our God, look at chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, and it ends this way. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders, representing of the redeemed of all time, fell down and worshiped. And here's what I, kind of way I want to end. We need to remember our study over the last seven weeks. Churches that were being tempted to compromise, to fall into idolatry, to fall into immorality. Churches that were facing severe, severe persecution. One church, Smyrna, would go through the darkest of tribulations. Another church, Philadelphia, would actually be delivered from tribulation. 
But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, whether we are delivered somehow supernaturally from difficulty and pain or whether we are called on by God to endure the darkest of difficult times or, as Jesus said, to be persecuted for my name's sake, regardless of what our plot in life is, here's the deal. God is on his throne and he is in control. He's in control. Brothers and sisters, if for some reason you had the most amazing week where nothing went wrong, it had nothing to do with you. Because if it had something to do with you or me, here's the deal. If it, if it was on me, I'd screw it up. Because that's just what I do. Right? That's what we do. We mess things up. But praise God, if, I've, if I had a week where no difficulty entered into my life, although that hardly ever happens, it's because God allowed it. He is on his throne. And if I had a week where every single day and every single turn something went wrong or something happened. And I think in many of our lives that seems to be more regular. That seems to be more common. Even in those moments, God is on his throne. Things are not out of control. He is in control. Therefore, everything we do for him is worth it. And he is worthy of it. He's worthy of it all. So as we come to the end of this section, think about this. All of heaven is on its face before the Father and before the Son. Praise is radiating in every heart. But this is where I want you to see something very powerful. God is not just worthy in heaven. He's worthy right now. God is not just worthy in heaven, brothers and sisters. He is worthy right this minute. He's worthy of worship and praise. He's worthy of every life in this room. He's worthy of every home represented in this room. He is worthy today. He'll be worthy tomorrow. He is worthy this week, and praise God, He'll be worthy next week, and He'll be worthy forever. And God is not just worthy of some praise. He is worthy of all praise. And he's not just worthy of the praise of some people. God is worthy of the praise of all people. Which begs the question, does he have ours? Does he have ours? Are we, is he worthy? Is he worthy to us? Is he worthy of your life? Is he worthy of mine? Revelation 4, 5, 4 and 5 says he is. He is worthy. Let me end with this story. And we've heard some of this before about the Moravian community, a community in Germany in the 1700s. And in 1727, the Moravian community, 300 of them at the time, many in the community, 24 men and 24 women covenanted together. They would pray around the clock. So they would, they would be one person that would be praying around the clock for 24 hours. And this prayer movement went on unhindered for over 100 years. Okay, 65 years into this prayer movement, get this, it started out as only 300 in this community, 65 years into this prayer movement, over 300 people had gone out on mission. 300 missionaries around the world had been sent out. Which either means that this community, all they did was either pray and, and have babies, or that they prayed and in the midst of praying, in the midst of walking through evangelism and discipleship, they saw more and more people come to know the Lord. So 300 missionaries around the world, including North and South America, Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and the Arctic. And the first, the first to leave Germany as missionaries were two Moravian tradesmen, 36-year-old David Nixman and 26-year-old Johann de Baer. They left in 1732, five years after this prayer movement began. And this is where it gets really, really good. Because these young men 
heard of the plight of African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean, where they had been told that 3,000 slaves were doomed to live and to die without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ. And they determined in that moment that they would do whatever it took to reach them. And guess what it took? They had to sell themselves into slavery in order to reach them. So they sold themselves into slavery. The money they got from that, they purchased the, the ticket um, to get them there. So think about this. The Moravian community came in this moment to see these two young men off. These men would never return, having freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery. So family members were emotional. They were weeping. They were asking questions such as, is this extreme sacrifice wise? Is it necessary? And as the ship slipped away with the tide and as the gap widened, the young men went to the back of the ship. They locked arms and they raised their hands and they shouted across the, the, the gap. And I'm going to put their words up on the screen because you've got to see them and you've got to hear them. They said this, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Let me ask you a question. What's the reward of his suffering? And here's the reward of his suffering. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation before his throne. Here's what he's worthy of. He's worthy of unending praise. He's worthy of your life and he's worthy of my life. He's worthy of every breath that we take. He's worthy of every bit of attention that we could give to him. He is worthy. God the Father is worthy. God the Son is worthy. God the Holy Spirit is worthy. Oh, today that we would see his worth. He would see his worth. We're going to end this morning with a song that basically says this. It's a question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? I pray you already know the answer. But if you don't know the answer, I pray that in singing this, you will know the answer. He's worthy. He is worthy. If you've never trusted him as your Savior and Lord, he's worthy. If you've never put your life on the table saying, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. He's worthy of it. He's worthy. This is who he is. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to ask musicians to come forward. And let's approach now the worthy one. So, Father, we just approach you. And, God, that is our declaration. Lord, you're worthy. You are worthy of every life in this room. You're worthy of our praise, God. Not just some of it, but all of it. You're worthy of the praise of all people, God. You're worthy. You are worthy. Father, I pray that if any person in this room today has never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord, that today would be the day. They would understand, Lord, that you are Jesus, you're our worthy Savior. But also, Lord, pray for brothers and sisters across this room that we would wrestle with that, that question, Lord. Are we living our lives as if you're worthy? Are we showing your worth in our daily lives? Are we showing your worth in, in how we respond to every situation? Are we showing your worth, God, in how we live our lives day in and day out? Lord, ultimately, Father, this is not something we can do on our own. Only, Holy Spirit, only you can do that. So may this be, a, Lord, a holy moment by which we as your people are saying, Holy Spirit, do that in me. Holy Spirit, show me, God, your worth. Show me 
how worthy you are and help me, Holy Spirit, to live worthy. So that we can say, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.